Let's stand together, and uh, we're going to read from God's holy word from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, and this morning's reading will be verses 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way... There will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, there could be nothing greater than for us to know that there is a way that's richly provided for us to enter the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I pray in the name of Jesus, the name that saves, that everyone that's present here this morning will know what way that is, and perhaps just as importantly, will know what way that isn't. Give us clarity about these eternally important matters, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We may, of course, be seated, and we're going to keep 2 Peter chapter 1 right there in front of you. And we're going to walk together through this, uh, these verses uh, 3 and 11. You're probably aware the Winter Olympics have begun, right? How many of you are Winter Olympic fans? All right, and then there's a particular sport in Winter Olympics that's kind of polarizing. People either love it and want to see every minute of it, or they don't want to see any of it, right? And of course, we're talking about figure skating. So how many of you are all in on the figure skating? Okay, how many of you are not all in on the figure skating? Not in at all, all right? So hopefully we won't have any divided homes during the next couple of weeks. But I read uh, in the newspaper this headline. uh, It said, no American woman has landed a triple axle in an Olympics got to be honest, I don't even know if I saw a triple axel, if I'd know I'd seen it. But, and I might get her name wrong, because I'm sort of surface. I don't know all the details. So if I'm saying her name wrong, just forgive me. The headline said, Mariah Nagasu intends to try it twice, right? Nobody's done it once. We've got a lady in the competition in 2018 who's going to try to do it twice. And the article went on to say, Mariah Nagasu's competitive legacy will be determined by a few tenths of a second. She will spend spinning in the air, limbs pulled tightly around her, hoping the ice will be kind when she returns. Now, we've just watched a little bit, and so far, friends, the the ice has not been kind to anybody. It goes on to say, the article, as long as she spins three and a half times, she need land only once to make U.S. figure skating history as the first American woman to complete a triple axel at the Olympics. Like the other two women in the competition, she's not expected to earn a medal, 
unlike the other two American women and all but one American before her, she will attempt the triple axle on Olympic ice. Well, during these 2018 Winter Olympics, athletes most of us have never heard of previously or can't even pronounce their names will compete on this grand stage after months and months of practice and hard work that was not broadcast, that was not on NBC, right? And no cameras were there at 5 in the morning or earlier when they hit the ice or they hit the slopes or they hit the rink, right? They've been up early for weeks and months and even years working hard for this competition that will play out before us as we sit comfortably, having not done any of those things on our own couches, right? And I have great admiration, don't you, of the devotion it takes to become an Olympic athlete the effort it takes now you saw in second peter chapter 1 verse 5 for this very reason make every effort so we got to chart a course this morning in the attempt to answer a simple but really important question we've been talking about transformed by grace right that here's Peter writing this letter, and the grace of God has completely transformed. Has the grace of God transformed your life? I mean, have things gone on in your character, in your behavior this past week, that the only explanation for them is that the Holy Spirit is transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen Peter's highs and lows, and, and sometimes they happen right together. It's almost like he hits the triple axle, and then he stumbles on the way out of the rink, you know, that he seems to handle some complicated spiritual truth well and then can't get the basics right. And, and that we all have in, in common. So we read here that there is effort in the Christian life. There is a proper place for it. But we got to get it straight where it goes. In fact... Your very best efforts in your whole life ought to be directed into becoming more like Christ, right? I mean, are you exerting Holy Spirit-led effort to become more like Jesus? Now, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to use this paragraph to see the results of being transformed by grace. Because there are certain things in this process that only God can do, right? And then there are certain things that you are to give the effort to do. And this is really tricky sometimes in the Christian life to know where one is uh, his responsibility, right? Holy Spirit's responsibility. And then what is our responsibility? Now, there's two words that we want to know, uh, justification and sanctification. But before we get to those, let's think about a human baby being born, right? A human baby is born and you've got a birthday. And when it gets to your birthday, you remember the day that you were born, right? And that happens in a moment. It happens on a day. But, but then, once the baby's born, that baby begins to grow, right? I mean, just state the obvious. I could take a, a picture of my ch- uh, children a year ago or two years ago or three years ago and, and see them now and see how they have grown, right? As a matter of fact, the best evidence that there was a day they were born is that they're in the world now and they're growing. And that works for the same way for your conversion, you want to know if there's a day that you were born again, the best evidence is that, there, that there's ongoing growth in your life. Make sense? Another way to think about it uh, as we approach 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, is think about the role of a, of a farmer. There's something the farmer does, right? 
clear the ground. As a, as a matter of fact, isn't this the first job that God gave Adam in the garden? He's to cultivate the ground, right? Of course, after the fall, that job changed a little bit, and now it's to cultivate the ground by the sweat of your brow. And in, in, in one way, you would say, if you've got a farmer, he's got a field, and he wants a harvest, what does he have to do? He has to make every effort. We could put it that way, right? But even as he makes the effort, there are certain things that he can't bring about. Amen? And he's not responsible for the weather. He's not responsible for the sun and the, hanging in the sky. He's not responsible for the water. I mean, he can, he can try to irrigate and do some of those things, but he's not created and designed the seed itself, right? Who brings forth the seed and the growth and the fruit? And that helps us understand how to cultivate godliness in our own lives, right? There are certain things that God does, and then there are certain things that we do, and we are participating together. So, on your outline, you want to get the foundation correct, right? Having been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the foundation, right? Amen? We, we believe this, right? We believe this because there are many places we could see it in the Scripture, but I'll put one verse on the screen that I think puts it as plain as day for us all to see, and it's from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. So we'll put that verse on the screen so you can, you can see it. Here's the Apostle Paul's writing. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. We hearing it? This is not your own effort. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, everybody look at the verse, everybody see a couple words, everybody see the word grace. Say amen if you see the word grace. You see the word faith. Do you see the word works? All right. uh, One of my favorite preachers is Alistair Begg. He always says you have to get the prepositions right. We are saved by grace, through faith, unto works. Are we saved by works? No. We're saved by grace. How do, how do we uh, apply the grace? Through faith. We believe in the grace and his precious and very great promises. I mean, Peter's saying much the same in his letter that this is saying. But you are saved not by works, but we are saved unto works. Make sense? The, the grace that saves you is the grace that begins to transform you. And then once you've been raised from death to life or to put it, you're born again and you're spiritually alive now there is an effort that we give our salvation is a gift of God based on the righteousness and work of Jesus amen now if you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ there's nothing more precious to you than belonging to him so that brings us to the point number one but it's under the foundation or built on the foundation of having been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So point number one is there is an effort that we give. So important theologically that we understand that this point is being made under that banner at the top, right? Having been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there is an effort that we give. Are you working hard at becoming like Jesus? But this is still important, y'all. This is why it gets tricky. But you're not left on your own to just work it out, right? 
you didn't start by grace, and then God said, I got it started, now it's up to you, right? The Holy Spirit's come, and here's another scripture that'll help us. Let's put Philippians chapter 2 on the screen, right? Here's Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's take a breath. That's a pretty good verse, isn't it, right? Did the, did the scripture say you work for your salvation? The scripture did not say that you work for your salvation. And the reason we're emphasizing this is most people believe if they're going to get to heaven, what Peter says, there's, therefore, there, in this way there's richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Most people on planet earth, whatever their background, whatever their culture, whatever their language would articulate in some way, shape, or form, there is something that I do, I earn, to get me into heaven. But that's not what Paul says. That's not what the Bible says. We don't work for our salvation it's received by grace, but once it is received by grace and the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, then we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this is important because this is two times the Scripture has testified to this. You heard Peter said, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. You heard him in Second Peter 1, right? And now Peter, these are the terms Peter uses. Work out your salvation with passivity and not really thinking about it much. It's not what he says, is it? What's the warning that we're being given here? What's the warning we're being given here? Is there a lot of people who are under the impression that they're saved, that they're not saved? That's what he's saying. You've got to work out your own self. You've got to think about these things carefully. Because it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's back up if you were tracking with us from Second Peter that God's at work at the level of your desires. So the works are not uh, obligation. They're things that we want to do. You might think of it in this way. Our eff the effort we make is completely in line with the fact that we've been saved by grace. So our effort is out of joyful gratitude, not obligated servitude. Does that make sense? I mean, here's an example from the scripture. Luke chapter 15. Jesus tells a parable about a man who has two sons. Jesus says, the younger of the sons came to his father and said, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. So his father gave him his inheritance. Not many days later, the younger son went to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a servant of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough food to eat, but here I perish with hunger. I will arise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to them, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he arose and went. And we all love this part, right? Well, he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him and called out to a servant and said, kill the fattened calf, for this son of mine was dead, and now he's alive, he was lost, and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son, coming out of the fields, heard the sound of music and dancing, and asked one of the servants what these things meant. And he was told, your brother has returned, your father has killed the fattened calf, and they're celebrating. And he was very angry, older brother, and refused to go in. But the father came out and pleaded with him. 
pleaded with him. And he responded to his father and said, I have served you all these years. You've never killed the fattened calf for me that I might celebrate with my friends. And his father said, everything I have is yours. It's right that we would celebrate. Now, here's a simple question. After that parable, the next day, those two boys, the one who's been forgiven by grace and the one who views his father as a, uh, that, that, that he serves him out of legalistic obligation or compel his father to do things for him, when those two boys go out into the field to serve their father the next day, who do you think serves him better? Who do you think should serve him better? One way that we might say this, friends, is that <laughs> those who believe in works-based salvation ought not to outwork those who believe in grace-based salvation. It ought not to be. The, the people who work the hardest to serve others and love others, the people who work out their salvation with the most fear and trembling are those who've been redeemed by grace. Because the younger brother knew it. He knew that he did not deserve what his father had given him, right? His plan was, I just want my father to treat me as one of, my hi one of his hired servants. And the fact that his father had restored him not to servanthood, but to sonship is what motivated him to work for his father with every effort. Does that make sense? And what we want to do is in our lives, we want to say, is, that's what, is that what is happening in my life? There is an effort that I give, but the effort we'll describe in two words. First of all, it's supplemental. We get that from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Our effort is supplemental. First Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, 5. For this reason, hey y'all, what's the reason? The reason is, since you've been saved by grace through his great and precious promises, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So again, faith is the foundation. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is the, uh, believing in the provision and promises of God as described in verses 3 and 4. See, most every other uh, worldview or faith <coughs> or religion in the world would start an epistle with verse 5 and not verse 3. Most every other faith would say, there's something that you do. We're saved by works unto grace. Meaning if there's something you can do, then God will give you grace. But the gospel of Jesus Christ begins not with works. It begins with grace. Amen? So one, uh, one descriptive term of the effort that we give is it's supplemental. And second, it's spirit-led. Just tag, tag our works with those descriptors. It's supplemental. It's spirit-led. The effort we give is initiated by and directed by the Spirit of God in us to show up outside of us. There is no element of the Christian life that is not under the control of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Remember, Jesus said, uh, when the Spirit comes, then you will be my witnesses. Back to the disciples, he said, don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit has come. Remember from Acts chapter 1? For this reason. For this reason. Because, because we'll, we'll mess it up. We'll give effort, but it'll be misplaced effort. And we'll be much more like Martha then we'll be like Mary, busy, busy, anxious, anxious, troubled, troubled. But our effort is misplaced. So, so first of all, we see having been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, there is an effort we give. And secondly, these verses teach us there are qualities we develop. Verses 5 through 9, for this very reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if there are two terms we don't want as followers of Christ to describe our lives, they would be ineffective and unfruitful. I think it would be helpful to just pause for a moment and allow the Word of God to do what it does and probe a little bit, right? Would the Holy Spirit say that in your life right now, ineffective or unfruitful would be appropriate terms? There's, there's qualities that we develop, and maybe a better way of, to say it so we're accurate is there are qualities we develop by God's grace as the Spirit is at work in us. You know, just as a good farmer will bring forth fruit, so there are qualities that are observable and being practiced in your life. And if you counted, there are seven of them, right? So let's look, at them, let's look at them quickly. We won't go into a lot of detail, but just mention exactly what these words mean. The first is uh, virtue. Supplement your faith first with virtue. Uh, maybe your translation says excellence. It's the same word as is used in verse 3. The knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So what's this word mean? This means it's a, it's a moral courage and some fortitude. This is the ability to stand alone if necessary. In other words, in other words, this is the very quality that Peter doesn't show the night that he denies Jesus three times, right? Standing there alone. Aren't you one of his followers? Hey, aren't you, I can tell by your accent you're from Galilee. Ever been there? Nobody else at work follows Jesus. Nobody else in the family follows Jesus. Nobody else in the classroom follows Jesus. And you feel like you're getting pushed into the corner, right? Supplement your faith with virtue. It's an inner resolve to be devoted to the right thing, no matter the external pressures, to forsake that resolve, right? And Hey, if you're going to follow Jesus 2018, you're going to need this. You're going to need this quality. You're going to need this virtue. It's a it's a it's a anthem that we sing. Though none go with me, right? Still, I will follow. If any man come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's it's, it's virtue. That's what he's he's talking about. Now, friends, let's get our grace straight, right? <laughs> and keep coming back to grace. We'll see this with all of these qualities. You'll be able to pinpoint times that Peter did not that Peter did not exhibit these qualities, right? And as we do that, here's where our faith is rooted. You won't ever find a time where Jesus didn't. Jesus always is virtuous. And the second word here is knowledge. It means a personal knowledge. It means really knowing someone. Uh, you're in 2 Peter. The same word is used over here in 1 Peter. might help us. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 Verse 7, about to help some people now, right? Same word, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. It's the same word as knowledge, just you really know them. You know their strengths and you know their weaknesses and you don't exploit one uh, at the expense of the other, right? 
Now, you probably know this is what fires my wife up. This is what makes her frustrated. And so, so I live to serve her, not to provoke her, right? Live in an understanding way. Now, this is written about we have the same knowledge of the Lord Jesus, right? We, we know him. We trust him. We're with him. We're the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, right? And it, it, means, it means deep understanding. The same word Paul uses in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count all things as lost next to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You really know Jesus. And then there's self-control. What's this word mean? As Peter uses it here, it means nothing else controls us but Jesus. We're not controlled by money, not controlled by lust, not controlled by power, not controlled by being right, not controlled by food or drinks, not controlled by drugs, not controlled by habits, not not controlled by work, not controlled by personal goals. Self-control means maintaining a balanced life even when the world encourages indulgence. It means knowing when to say no. Self-control. Are you cultivating self-control in your life and then steadfastness? Perhaps your translation says perseverance means doing the right thing regularly and consistently. This is a word that describes years, not days, right? You're steadfast in your faithfulness to the the Lord. It means to stay on the narrow path even when it's hard, even when you're suffering, even when no one else seems to be, even when it doesn't feel like what you want to do, you're steadfast. And then to add to that godliness, eusebia is the Greek word. It means authentic piety. It means you're the real deal goes in two directions. First, it describes a person who has the right perspective and attitude towards God, shows him the proper reverence, and, and also means that um, with, with our neighbor, uh, it's a right view of people. You have a genuine servant's heart. Godliness, obviously, means you're like God in your character, not like God in his power, authority, or whatnot, but remember, you've become a partaker in the divine nature. Add to that brotherly kindness. It's a Greek word. Philadelphia, right? means treating others as if they were members of your own family. means you make room for others in your life. We bear with one another in their burdens. Your fellow believers aren't annoyances to you, and they're not your rivals. They're your family. It's the key to a true Christian harmonious community, right? And then to cap it all off is agape, is love, unconditional devotion, the highest of the Christian virtues. As Paul says, the greatest of these is is love. This is the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an amazing list, isn't it? Seven qualities. Now, here's the the terms. Verse 8, if these qualities are yours, they are increasing. So you possess them, but they're ongoing, right? Can you look at it and see... Here's something that's really increasing in my life, or here's something by God's grace I need him to to help with. Now remember, Peter did not start with this list, because this is where, again, the fallen humanity goes. If I just bring these things about in my life, then I'll earn God's grace. No, that's not how it works. God's grace is trusted and believed, and we build our life upon it, and then we get the fruit. All false teaching, for the most part, wants to confuse the root and the fruit, right? The root is grace. The fruit is, are, are these things. Now, here's where again we see grace because you can look over the list again and see specific instances when Peter did not practice these things, right? A time in Peter's life where he didn't have real knowledge. Oh, Jesus, 
you'll never go to Jerusalem and suffer, right? He didn't know what he thought he knew. Is there a time that he did not produce um, self-control? Of course. The sword out and cut somebody's head off. Invoke a curse on himself is the gospel of Mark. Is there a time that he didn't exhibit steadfastness and perseverance? Of course. Was there a time that he didn't show forth godliness? A time that he didn't show forth brotherly kindness? Of course. Right? I'm the greatest of the disciples. A time that he didn't show forth love? Of course. But in the same way that you could pinpoint sometimes that that's true of Peter, could you do that with your own life? Of course. Of course. But uh, Jesus doesn't walk off the job and say, well, you're not producing this enough. No, he's going to stay with you to the end. Amen? He said, these are to be increasing. So it'll be worth your time to get along with the Lord, to look at uh, the list, seek the Spirit's help to increase. Now, let's put it all together, right? These things increase when you make the effort to produce them, right? So let's just acknowledge, for example, we do this with all seven. What effort could you give to increase in your knowledge of who God is? What effort could you give? Well, one would be what you're doing. I'm going to be steadfast in Sunday morning worship with my church family. I'm going to be steadfast and give give an effort that as we're going through 2 Peter, I'm really going to read it for myself. I'm going to pray over it. I'm going to think. I'm going to be a passive observer. I'm not going to be a passive listener. Another effort we might give is I'm going to be regular in Bible reading. I mean, if, if, if God has shown who he is through the scripture, then it makes sense that I would make the effort to read the Bible regularly, right? How about brotherly affection? I'm going to make the effort to invite some people over to my house. We're going to sit down and eat, right? And we're going to be together. We're going to pray together. Effort in, um, in love and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so let's put it together. These qualities we develop with God's help, but there is an effort behind our doing it. And then third brings us to point number three. There's an assurance that we obtain. There's an assurance that we obtain. If these qualities, verse 8, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I love this. Uh, Anybody here nearsighted? One of the small little gifts I've gotten in my life is I've always had pretty good eyesight, right? Um, I mean, I, I, I haven't had the issue yet with reading and whatnot. I think I've got this right, and y'all can correct me if I'm wrong. Nearsighted means you can't see things far away. Is that right? Is that right? I really want it to be right, or this illustration is going to not be right. But it means you can't see things that, that are far away. And this is helpful for us. When Peter says if the qualities aren't um, being produced, what does he say to do? Well, let's think about what he doesn't say. Peter does not say, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has a job to do. Peter doesn't say, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten he should work harder. And Peter doesn't say, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten he should do more. Right? What does Peter say? Hopefully... By God's spirit, these things are coming together. When Peter says, if 
qualities aren't increasing, what does he say? Remember grace. What he says? Having forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. You know, I feel this in my life. When I look and say, I'm not producing what I should produce. I just need to do more. I just need to try harder. But Peter's response is, when the works aren't being produced as they ought, you actually go back and remember the work of Jesus. What Christ has done. This is, this is a course correction I need in my life. Because my nature is, <laughs> we still got that old man in us that really desires to get the credit for earning a place into heaven. He says, you've become so nearsighted, you can't see things that are far away. And the first thing that you don't see clearly is, is actually the cross. Put the cross above these qualities to see that it's forgiveness that spurs all of them on, isn't it? Why would you increase in brotherly affection? Because you're supposed to? No, that's older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Why would you increase in brotherly affection? Because you look at the cross and you see a friend who would not forsake you. You see a friend who, who did not uh, come up short to provide for you what you needed, right? When you were imperfect, when you were sinful, when you couldn't get it right, uh, when, when you got the same thing wrong over and over and over again, and there he is, remember how your sins were forgiven, and then that spurs on your brotherly affection when you want to quit on your neighbor or quit on your fellow believer, right? Or quit on the person that you've been praying for and witnessing to and, and sharing the gospel with. It increases brotherly affection. So if we can get it down in our hearts, Works don't increase on the basis of works. Works actually increase on the basis of grace through faith in what he's already accomplished. This little microphone uh, tap there to really emphasize the point, right? What Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, what does he tell them to remember? He said, I've longed to sit down here with you. And then he, he transforms the, what had up to then be understood as the Passover meal, which is always designed the Passover to point ultimately to Jesus. How do they get to the promised land? It's by grace. But was there some effort to it? Well, yeah, they had to do some walking, right? But even as they walk, God's providing. Uh, we're walking, but we can't make the uh, Red Sea split, but you can, and now we walk. You see, it, 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 when you begin to see this, you'll see it all through the Scripture, right? You, we, do make an, we do make every effort, but it's always by grace, right? And we sit down at the table, you do this in remembrance of me. We do this in remembrance of me. What? Specifically remember what that he's done. He's given his body. He's given his virtuous life. He's given his full knowledge of everything. He's given his self-controlled life. He's given his steadfast life. He's given his godly life. 
He's given his brotherly affectionate life. He's given his agape sacrificial love. In fact, you see this with Peter when Jesus, what we often call, uh, restores him to, uh, to ministry. He tells him to do some work, but what is it on the basis of? Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. You can hear it, right? There's works to do, but the works are on the basis of loving Jesus. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Now, what is Peter going to need to feed sheep? He's going to need all these seven things, right? He's, he's going to need all seven of these things. If he's really going to feed and shepherd a flock of God, he's going to have to have virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly kindness and, and love. And, and But again, friends, it's on the basis of what Christ has done. So here's the assurance. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what are we to be diligent about and what are we to have assurance of that when it's true in our lives, we're going to go to the kingdom of God eternally, that you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, unto works that proclaim the goodness and grace of God. Stand together, pray together, have our invitation. Been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Is there an effort that you're giving? Are there qualities that are being developed in your life? And is there an assurance that you have? We get these things straight from God's word. So we're going to pray together. And then we'll have our invitation this morning. Father, the most dangerous lie, perhaps in all the world, is that we're saved by something other than grace. So I pray today in Jesus' name that the word of God is active among us with clarity and power and that your Holy Spirit brings conviction of righteousness and the coming judgment. And we've sung about it, we've proclaimed it, that you've so loved the world that you've given your only begotten Son so that whoever believes Whoever has faith in Christ will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So, Father, I pray that you give us grace to be a people marked by grace. Help us where our virtue is not as it should be. Our knowledge is immature. Help us where our steadfastness is wanting. Our godliness is needing to be increased. Help us when our brotherly affection is not as Christ-like as it ought to be and when we don't love, enough, love one another. 
love you as we are. Give us grace to be a people who are not ineffective and unfruitful in what we know about Jesus. Help this invitation to be uh, holy and focused on Christ. Help us not to be so nearsighted that we're blind having forgotten the glorious truth that in Christ we've been forgiven from our former sins. So produce in us the right kind of assurance, knowing that in this way there's richly provided for us an entrance into your eternal kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.